0: Hey, this is Pastor Matt from Missio Day Fellowship in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. I'm thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they're a way to encourage you in your walk with Christ. However, this sermon was given in the context of my local church and for those that God has entrusted to me. If you are in our area, I want to encourage you to come on a Sunday to worship with Our Body. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk with Christ, but no means a substitute for your local church. You need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible-teaching church and shepherd in your area. Well, open your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 7. We have the privilege this morning of returning to our our study of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, If you're newer with us um, or visiting this morning, it is our habit to sequentially work through portions of Scripture, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, sometimes word by word. And because all that matters to us as a church is the Word of God. In a day of so many thoughts and voices and opinions, All that really matters is what God has said, and so we devote our time every single Sunday to the study of His Word. It is that sole source and final authority for truth, and so we do seek to submit our minds and our hearts every single week to this most important task. And so we have been working through the Gospel of Luke for a long, long, long time. We are all going to be dead before I finish this. We have been in Luke for over two and a half years at this point. Um, We come this morning, though, to officially begin chapter 7. I feel like I should get some kind of trophy. Um, I really enjoyed working slowly through the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we just finished in chapter 6, and because it is such a misused and abused portion of Scripture, especially in our day. um, But perhaps my favorite portion of Luke so far has been chapter 5. And because, if you remember, the essence of chapter 5 was to give us some portraits of grace. You'll have to think back, but you'll remember that we saw uh, Jesus coming to Peter, James, and John and calling them there to leave everything and then follow him. You might remember that they weren't expecting it. They weren't looking for Jesus. They were just living their normal life with not much concern for God. Not much concern over the state of their own souls, and yet in the midst of such apathy, Jesus shows up and alters their life. In fact, the text states that Peter, for the first time, recognizes Jesus as Lord. And so Luke records that at such recognition, they leave everything and follow him. He becomes their Lord, their, their master, their Savior. It was a radical change. And so sudden. We also saw in chapter 5 that wonderful account of the leper, one of my favorites personally, a man who essentially had the sentence of death over his life, and yet due to his humility and willingness to come to Jesus and admit his need and en- endure his shame, he was healed. He was saved and delivered from that impending death, which, of course, was a wonderful picture pointing to the spiritual healing that Jesus provides for the sinner. We saw that amazing story of the paralytic, a man desperate for healing and yet with no ability to gain access to the healer. And so his friends, and due to their amazing faith, they they passed over the crowd that was sort of blocking him out, and they just start ripping these tiles off the roof and lower their friend essentially into the lap of Jesus. And he was healed. And so we saw that amazing story of grace where Jesus immediately reverses his paralysis. And again, another picture pointing to the spiritual healing that Jesus provides for the sinner. And what was so special about that particular passage is that for the very first time in the Gospel of Luke, we see a straightforward declaration that Jesus is the fullness of God. That not only is he able to provide a physical miracle, but that he was also able to forgive sin, something which, of course, belongs to God alone. And then we saw probably my favorite, which was that account of Levi, Levi the tax collector. You remember him. He was that man who was regarded by the nation as the most defiled of all men, and because to be a tax collector was to be at the bottom of a society. You were a traitor to the nation, you were seared in your conscience, you were willing to extort your own people for the sake of personal gain, and so you were the most base of all sinners. Your corruption was great, your defiled sinful state in their minds was something that was irreversible. And so we saw in that story the amazing truth that no sinner is ever too far gone for the grace and the mercy of Christ. And No matter what you've done or who you are, the point of that passage was to teach that his forgiveness is limitless. Sometimes people wonder if they're too far gone or if they're too out of reach for salvation. But the tremendous truth of that passage and the truth of the gospel is that his grace and his mercy is never-ending. You can never out-sin his, his grace. It is boundless. It is limitless. And so chapter 5 was filled with these various vignettes, if you will, of the fact that Jesus has come exclusively for the sinner, that He has come to seek and to save the lost, as He says, that He has not come for those who are righteous, but He has come for those who are need, needing to be made well. He has come for those who are sick. That is to say that He has come for those who understand their sin, they understand that they're in a very desperate place and in need of forgiveness before a God who is perfectly righteous and perfectly holy. And so it was a beautiful chapter in many ways. And, and so I am rather eager now to begin chapter seven because in chapter seven, Luke is going to give us yet some more stories of God's grace. Wonderful stories that reveal exactly who Jesus is and why. Frankly, he has come. And so my hope and my desire over these next few weeks is that for those of you who understand the gospel, and for those of you who have been in Christ for many, many years, that you might once again be reminded of the richness of your salvation. That you might be reminded afresh of who Jesus is, and once again be compelled by his miracle of saving grace that he has wrought about in your life. And he has rescued you and delivered you from the penalty of your own sin. That he has redeemed you in a very personal but eternal way. And for those of you who are still on the fence with some of these things or perhaps still wrestling with what Christianity is all about or who exactly Jesus is and, and why he has come, my hope is that perhaps for the first time you might see him for who he is. That you might cease from striving, cease from trying to clean up your life and make yourself more acceptable or presentable to God through religion and through false forms of spirituality. That you might cease from trying to arrange your life in such a way before the eyes of your maker. And perhaps because you were falsely taught that there is something within you that can somehow please him. And so my hope is that you would simply find rest, that you might understand that salvation or even sanctification is not a result merely of you, that it's never a result of your religion or your sense of spirituality or your ability to muster up good works, but rather that salvation is a result exclusively of what Jesus Christ has done already for you. And so before we take a look at the account this morning, let me read this section for you in which we're going to spend our time, namely verses one through ten of chapter seven, which is this wonderful account of Jesus' interaction with a Roman centurion. a tremendous story, a story showing that Jesus has come for the outsider again, there are some who wonder if Jesus' salvation can actually apply to them, if Jesus' saving work can cover even their sin and because they are that outsider. They've not been raised within the church. They've not been raised within Christianity, or perhaps they have, but they're very aware of the depth of their own sin. And so they wonder if they're too far gone. They wonder if the kingdom of God is something that is always for other people and because they've lived a life separate from Christ, they've lived a life of sin and rebellion. They lived a life and darkness and living for self. Or perhaps it's been a seemingly relatively moral and ethical life, but it's still a life lived apart from any thought of Christ. It's been a life void of intentionally living for him daily or living in a manner which seeks to honor him, which, of course, is how the Bible actually defines ungodliness. It is simply that person who goes about life, but without daily thought of him, without seeking to arrange your life under him. And so this is a passage this morning that reveals in very clear terms that that is the very kind of person that Jesus is after he has, in fact, come for the outsider, that he has come for the one who perhaps thinks that they are furthest from the kingdom. And so he has come in no uncertain terms for the sinner. And so if that is you this morning, then this is a passage that I think contains some very good news for you. And because not only are you the very kind of person that he will save, but as we're going to see in the passage this morning, he is also, you are also the very kind of person that he intends to use. And so look with me, if you would, to chapter 7 in verses 1 through 10 as I read this portion of Scripture. Here's what Luke records under the inspiration of the Spirit. He says, and when he had completed all of his discourse, this is Jesus, When he had completed his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. And when he had heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and to save the life of his slave. And when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. And Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave, in good health. Well, many times throughout the gospel, um, we see people being amazed by Jesus. They're amazed by his teaching, amazed by his miracles, amazed by his power. They're amazed by his ability to cast out demons, his ability to heal all in any kind of sickness. In fact, by this point, he had essentially banished all sickness and disease from The region of Galilee. And so it was an amazing time. It was an amazing run of ministry for Jesus. In fact, as I've been telling you, he's essentially experiencing celebrity status at this point. His name has been rumored and made famous among the greater regions. Now, some were no doubt curious and maybe a little bit skeptical about the rumors, but for those who had experienced such marvelous things and had been eyewitnesses to such things. They had fallen into remarkable amazement. In fact, the word is thaumadzo, means to marvel or to be amazed. It's to fall into astonishment, to be struck with wonder, as it's sometimes translated. And so we see this many times in the Gospels. In fact, we've seen it many times so far, even in the Gospel of Luke, and yet what I find fascinating is that only two times in all of the gospel records is it ever recording that Jesus was amazed. We see it one time in Mark chapter 6 and verse 6 where Mark records that Jesus is amazed or he's, he's astonished. Again, thalmazo, he is he's struck with wonder. But the reason for that in that text is because of unbelief. He is in the synagogue there in Nazareth, his hometown, and he is teaching in that particular passage. And so he is teaching profound truth. He is revealing certain things about himself. He is revealing certain things about his coming ministry, and he reveals in that passage in no uncertain terms that he is the Christ, that he is that long-anticipated Messiah for which the whole Old Testament was pointing And so the people there in his hometown, Nazareth, begin to marvel. And because in their eyes, he is simply the son of their town's carpenter. And so as he begins to teach and reveal such things, as you could imagine, he is met with tremendous unbelief. He is, in their minds, that boy who simply used to run through their streets, And so it's at this experience of such rejection that Mark records that he is struck with amazement. He is struck with wonder, saumazo, but at their unbelief. But the second time, and the only other time in all of the Gospels that Jesus is recorded as being amazed is here in our passage this morning. And we see it here in verse nine, translated notice as marvel, that Jesus is marveling at this centurion. And so This Roman centurion, as we're going to see, is the only person in all of the Gospels that that was somehow able to amaze Jesus, which is just a mind-blowing concept when you think about the fact that Jesus is the fullness of God. And so while the amazement in Mark chapter 6 is the result of unbelief or a lack of faith, we see here this morning that to amaze Jesus in a positive sense is therefore to have faith. It is to respond to Jesus, but in belief. In fact, the title of my sermon this morning is is The Profile of a Disciple, and because that's essentially what this passage is going to be all about. But I almost entitled it How to Amaze Jesus. And because there is only one reality that can cause the God of the universe to marvel. There is only one reality that can move him to be struck with amazement toward the sinner. And it is always that most important concept of faith. That is to say that God is amazed when he sees a person, when he sees a sinner respond in belief to the person and the words and the work of Jesus Christ. And because, as we're going to see later in the gospel, the most significant miracle that you could ever witness is not the healing of a blind person. It's not even the raising of a dead person. Rather, the most significant miracle that you could ever witness is when you see a person who is dead in their sin and utterly hardened in their heart toward the person and the things of God, all of a sudden be given that most phenomenal gift of faith. It is belief or faith or trust in the person and the words and the work of Christ that manifests the greatest miracle you could ever witness. Which is why Jesus marvels at this man. And so, before we get into it, I have been telling you that Luke is a historian. He is a pastor. He is a physician. We know that from the book of Acts, but he is also a tremendous theologian. He's an incredible man. And so, here's where you begin to see some of his best theology, particularly in the way that he arranges his writing and the way that he structures his historical record. He is not just recording facts or events haphazardly. In fact, I told you that often the Gospels are not written in a strictly chronological order. People wonder why the Gospel accounts don't always match up perfectly. Well, the reason for that is because the authors are typically more interested in conveying something theologically rather than chronologically, That is to say that in the order of the structure with which they arrange their material, they're often seeking to communicate some kind of theological truth. And so in chapter 5, remember, he gives those important records of people coming to faith and being called to become a disciple and follow him. And so he begins chapter 5 with those words to Peter, James, and John, to leave everything, which of course then sets the stage and launches everything that is to follow. And so then we immediately encounter the leper, the paralytic, Levi, the tax collector, all of which demonstrate the reality of sinners converting to Christ. And then in chapter 6, after Luke contrasts those newly converted people with The unconverted Pharisees were then given that very provocative teaching on what true discipleship looks like, which is everything that we just saw in the Sermon on the Mount. And so what we're going to see here then in chapter 7 is the Sermon on the Mount now essentially being embodied, but through this Roman centurion. And so understand that there's this sort of sandwiching that's taking place in the structure of Luke's writing. You've got these narrative accounts or these stories that bookend this great teaching of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And so everything that we've been seeing in chapter 6, we're now about to see demonstrated through the life of this man. And so just to give a quick outline and a reminder in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount, just hang with me. We saw that a true disciple is deeply, first of all, remorseful over their sin. We saw that in verses 20 through 23. In fact, that's where it has to begin. That is where all true conversion is created. Begins by recognizing for the first time the depravity of your own sinful state. And then after you recognize your spiritual poverty, you then hunger and thirst to be made righteous. And so a truly converted disciple is sorrowful over the state of their sin, and so they therefore want to now be made right before their God. And so in verses 27 and following, we then see that a true disciple not only hates their sin, but they now all of a sudden have a capacity to love. And specifically, they develop a love for the enemy, a love for the very one who seeks to harm them, but on account of their faith in Christ. And what we saw was that that was something supernatural. Remember, it is very natural to love those who love you. That is easy, but it is supernatural to love those who hate you, to love those who seek your harm. And then in verse 30, we saw that a true disciple is also a giver. That is to say that he is marked by lavish generosity, and specifically generosity toward those who give nothing in return. And again, that is not something that is not only not possible on a natural level but if the god of love is now abiding within you then not only can you love those who don't love you but you also seek to actively love those who seek your harm verse 35 and then in verse 36 we see that a saved disciple is also merciful he is compassionate he is gentle In fact, that is the evidence of God in his heart. He has that transforming work of God in him. And so he or she begins to take on that very character and quality of God himself. And so since God is compassionate and gracious toward the sinner, then when God abides in you, then you too will become compassionate and gracious toward those who sin against you. And then beyond even that, the true disciple also follows the right teachers. They follow true teachers that lead to true salvation and true sanctification. He doesn't follow blind guides and empty talkers, but rather he is now zealous for the truth. He is a person hungry for the word of God and because he now desires for his life to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And so the authentic disciple is not looking for teaching that will most appease his senses or most tickle his ears in fact, he has no appetite any longer for falsehood. He's got no appetite for watered-down spirituality and because he hungers and he thirsts for the purity of God's word alone. And so he is willing to submit himself and at all costs to the often hard sayings of Scripture. Because the proper understanding they understand is vital to sanctification, a proper understanding of the Scriptures is critical to becoming like Christ. And then as we saw last time in 46 or 49, a true disciple is not merely a person who comes and hears the words of Jesus, but he comes, hears, and obeys. The mark of any true disciple is not merely their talk or what they say they believe, but it is always evidenced in their obedience. And so all of that we saw as Jesus taught from the side of that mountain, And so in a very practical way, we're now going to see it this morning embodied in this Roman centurion. He is a man who embodies this sermon, and so he provides a flesh and life example of what it means to now be one who follows Christ. And so we're going to see five marks here this morning that reveal what a true follower of Jesus is, and therefore why a true follower of Jesus is the only reality in the universe that can amaze him. And so let's take a look at verses one and two and set the scene a little bit. Notice again, please, he states, and when he, Jesus, had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. Now, if you didn't know, a centurion in the Roman world was a very special person. In fact, being able to have the opportunity this week to do some historical study on this Um, These were some very special men. In fact, the prefix here of of cent helps you understand, first of all, that a centurion was a Roman officer who commanded at least 100 men. These were men of war, men of battle and blood. They were extremely dignified. They received their position typically due to some extraordinary military feat. And so these weren't men who just sort of stood behind the fence and yelled out some orders. Rather, these were men who led the charge. These were men who were often in the midst of heroism. And so these were men of high reputation and respect. In fact, they commanded respect. They commanded loyalty and honor. And so a centurion in the Roman world was a very unique person. These are men who, as we're going to see, were under authority meaning that they received orders from a higher official, but what made them so special is not only could they receive orders and carry those out with precision, but they also had no problem giving orders. They had a fleet of warriors under them, and so they were able and humble enough to receive those orders, but then strong enough to command those orders and execute them with precision. In fact, any of you have been in any real position of leadership, you understand how unique and rare these types of leaders truly are. Usually you've got a type A kind of person who needs to be in control of everything. Um, And so as a result, they, they never really become an effective leader or are able to effectively raise up leaders under them or execute a certain task that needs to be executed. And because they're so controlled by their desire to control. Or on the other extreme, you've got a passive sort of micro-obsessor who's always caught in the weeds. And so they can never really accomplish anything because they're so hamstrung by the details or so controlled by the approval of their superior that they never act. And so when you've got a person who can both receive but also give orders and give them well with intelligent discernment and execution, then you have got a tremendously invaluable gift. In fact, an organization simply won't survive for any length of time without these kinds of people. And so centurions were this breed of leader. They were natural-born leaders. In fact, there was a certain quality that they possessed that would often cause them to sort of naturally rise up within the ranks and be noticed not only by their superiors but also by their peers, their peers were quick to yield to their natural instincts and their judgments, and despite the fact that they didn't even yet possess a formal title. And so these were men who were battle-tested. They had a certain sense of fortitude. They were stre- they had strength, they had courage, they had commitment, they were loyal. And so their peers had no problem following them, despite the fact that they did not yet possess an official title. And so again, it was not hard to see that natural leadership quality within them. And so they would quickly rise up within the ranks of the empire. In many ways, these were a man's man. They could lead without a title in the midst of battle. These were men who, frankly, couldn't not lead. They couldn't help but to lead. It's what was in them. It's what they were, it's what they did by nature. And so again, they were also unique in that while they could give commands, they had no problem receiving them. They weren't men driven and controlled by power or somehow needing to be at the top. They were men who were content to serve. They were content to simply play their part for the greater good of Rome. And so they were integral to the success of the empire. In fact, if you didn't have centurions or men of such character, you didn't have an army. These men were without doubt the hinge upon which the entire Pax Romana kept its strength. And so I don't have the time to give you a full history of these men, but it is a fascinating and intriguing thing to read about. These men show up 23 times in the Gospels and the Book of Acts, and every single time that they appear, they're presented as men of valor, men of dignity. They were bold, brave, courageous, risk-taking, able to handle power, able to garner allegiance. And so they would wield tremendous power, but with the command of their word. In fact, we see that a little bit in verse 8. So these were some very unique and special men. It's also important to understand that centurions were extremely wealthy They were not low-ranking men in the ancient world, and so they were highly esteemed and honored within this empire. It's important to understand that they were not public servants, kind of like how we understand police officers in our day, where their role is to serve and protect a community within a particular democracy. Rather, these were significant, high-ranking men within the empire and therefore received regal honors. These were very wealthy, important figures. They didn't exist for the people. Rather, the people honored them. And so this is the sort of man that we encounter in this passage. And he is a man who, notice, owns a slave. And he is a slave. The Greek word is doulos. To be a slave in the Roman Empire was to be a piece of chattel property. This was not indentured servanthood. Rather, slaves were not considered people. Slaves, in fact, were tools. They were owned as capital and for the purpose of the master's pleasure. And so what's interesting is that down in verse 7, notice the centurion calls him his servant. And it's important for the passage to see that because this is a very Different word than we see here in verse two. Verse two is the word doulos, which again means slave. But the word here in verse seven is pice, which means boy or young man. The fact is that in the ancient world, centurions would often have younger men or younger boys who were about to become men follow them around as a sort of intern. They were they were more than interns; they were still slaves. They were still therefore owned by the centurion, but they followed him around for the purpose of learning manhood learning what it meant to be a leader. And so in a sort of mentorship type of relationship, this boy or this young man, who was again owned by this centurion, would learn many skills. He would learn the ways of manhood and it'd be a sort of grooming process for the purpose of the empire. Now, if you know anything about Roman history, you also understand that this is where there was notorious massive abuse and pedothalia happening. And make no mistake, this was a serious issue that was never called into question by the empire, and I can't overemphasize that enough, and because, again, it is going to be very important for the purpose of this passage and for drawing out the character of this particular centurion. And I'll spare you some of the graphic reading of that history, but, but the reason for that, again, is because these were slaves. These were pieces of property. They existed for the master, and so they served him in whatever capacity he desired, And so a slave had no legal right. There were zero avenues for litigation or protection. In fact, an owner could simply kill their slave for absolutely no reason at all. They were, again, simply property. They were chattel. They had no rights as a person. And so no one would ever blink an eye at how a person would treat their slave, especially if you were a centurion. And so it is significant that he calls him here down in verse 7, his pice. This was not a mere slave to this centurion, but this is one whom he regarded as precious. Which again, reveals the character of this man. And again, that is the point. He was different. He was unique. This was not a man who would use and abuse those under him, though he had the legal right to do so. Rather, he had integrity. He had character. In fact, notice, he cared deeply for this slave, States in verse two that this slave was highly regarded. In the original, it's the word for precious or treasure. And so he had a very deep affection for this boy. In fact, it would not be a stretch to say that he viewed him in some capacity as his own son. He was valuable to him, he treasured him. And so he was very special in the eyes of this man so the problem that we encounter is that this boy, notice, is now gravely sick. And this is not just some run-of-the-mill sickness. Rather, notice he is sick and about to die. Literally, he is on the ridge of death. Matthew tells us in his account that he is lying paralyzed and suffering great pain. And so this is that moment where you're not merely tending to a sick person. Rather, this is a scene in which perhaps everyone is surrounding the bed waiting for the inevitable He is on the edge of death. This was a very grave situation. Hope has faded. Reality has set in. And so this boy, again, we're not told exactly the illness, but whatever it is, he is on the precipice of death. And so that is the setting. That is the scene of this story. That is the situation that Jesus, as he comes down from this mountain, begins to encounter in Capernaum. And so with that, notice what he does then in verse 3. And this is where it begins to pick up a little bit. And we begin to see now the profile of a true disciple. First of all, notice we see his desperate faith. We see his desperate faith. Now, first of all, this man is one who has never actually seen Jesus. I told you that we see many occasions where people are amazed by him and because they've seen his miracles, they've heard his teaching. But the centurion here is one who has, presumably not seen him perform any miracles, but has simply responded based upon what he has heard rumored of Jesus. And so this is not an act of faith based upon what he has seen or what he has perhaps tested. Rather, this is faith based upon what he has heard, verse 3. And that is key. He has heard a message. He has heard some good news about this man. In fact, this is what we saw in chapter 4 and verse 14. As well as verse 37, Luke records there that the report of the reputation of Jesus was beginning to spread out to the greater region. It was beginning to penetrate every locality in, in Galilee. And so no doubt the news of Jesus made its way even to this centurion's ears. And what you should understand is that he is desperate. He is very desperate. And because, as you could imagine, being a centurion, he's no doubt had... The best doctors, he's had the best medicine come to him. He's no doubt tried just about every tactic and medicinal technique and to no avail. And so as he hears of Jesus and that Jesus is coming to town, the desperation of his situation and one is one in which he realizes that this is his final hope. And so understanding that the gravity of death is inevitably upon him, it's within his home, he now calls for this healer. His Roman gods have failed him. His doctors have failed him. His position within Roman society is worthless. All of his money cannot save this boy. And so driven to desperation, he sends for the one whom he hears possesses the power to make the dying live. And so in his desperate faith, we then see second notice his tangible love. We see his tangible love. In fact, he could have just let this boy die, right? I mean, he's tried everything. He's brought out the best physicians, presumably. He has spent a good amount of money on this issue. But what drives him is his love. Because again, this boy was precious to him. And so this was not an attempt to make him well so that he could be, continue to be a useful tool for him. Rather, this was an attempt to make him well simply because he loved him. In fact, he could have replaced him immediately. Remember, slaves were just a sort of expendable property. He could have had within a day's time the cream of the crop, the greatest talent, the hardest workers, the ones who showed the most promise, but, but that is not the issue. The issue is that his love for this particular slave compels him to seek his healing. And so if this boy were merely some kind of tool, then this was a lot of unnecessary work. Just replace him. Get a new tool. And so his love becomes tangible. Notice it results in him acting. It actually compels him to do something. And so he sent some Jewish elders to request the help of Jesus. Notice, end of verse 3, Luke states, and he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. Now, the word here to save is very interesting. Actually, it speaks of salvation. It speaks of delivering someone through harm safely. In fact, it's the term that Paul often uses when speaking of salvation in Christ. It's the idea of a person being saved or delivered from impending judgment, impending wrath, destruction. And so Luke here doesn't use the term to heal or to make well, but the term to save. In fact, it's the idea of being snatched from the precipice of inevitable destruction. And so the centurion here, desiring this servant to be made well, he implores these Jewish leaders to bring to him this healing rabbi named Jesus. And this was an act of faith. Again, this was an act of love that very potentially could have resulted in deep shame for this Roman centurion. And because how is it that a Roman centurion, this high-ranking man of nobility who is owed honor is now dependent upon a Jewish rabbi. A man who at this point was homeless. He was merely a traveling preacher. And so he hears the message of Jesus. He hears the announcement that he is coming to town. And so in his desperation and compelled by his love for this slave, he humbles himself and sends for this Jew. And so notice then what these Jewish elders do. End of verse 4. Typical of them, they immediately craft an argument to Jesus for why this centurion is worthy, for why this unwashed Gentile is worthy to have salvation visit him. And so notice, end of verse 4, they state, for he is worthy for you to grant this to him. Well, what is this? Well, it is this, this work of salvation of Jesus, verse 3. And so he is worthy for you to grant this to him. And why? Well, for, so here's this argument, for he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now, first of all, that is an incredible testimony. If you can get some Jewish elders to publicly commend you, That is a significant feat. And especially if you are a Gentile. And because if you're a Gentile, then you are the enemy. You are outside the people of God. You're outside the nation of Israel. You're therefore outside the covenant and the promises and the salvation of Israel. Salvation is Israel's alone. It belongs to that covenant people alone. And so to be praised by some Jews, not to mention Jewish elders, that is a significant testimony of you especially if they're arguing that you ought to somehow experience God's salvation. And so without question, we see the character of this man all the more. Beyond his love and compassion for those under him, namely his slave, he is also apparently a man of tremendous generosity to those under him. So being as wealthy as he is, he evidently forked out the money to build their synagogue. In fact, since this is Capernaum, this is that very synagogue in which Jesus references that he taught in, in chapter 4. In fact, it's pretty amazing. To this day, actually, the foundations of that synagogue remain in Capernaum. You can see images of that online. Not now. And, yeah, that's a bad idea, huh? Um, This was an amazing man. This was an amazing man. Why should this Gentile, this centurion, this Roman commander, spend his own money to contrast or construct a synagogue for what were the notoriously grumbling Jews. Jews were troublemakers. They were a pain in the Roman's neck. Do you see this man embodying this Sermon on the Mount. He is giving without any notion that he will return, receive a return. This was lavish generosity. This was a man filled with compassion and mercy. He had every right to be a harsh ruler. He had every right legally to... Be demanding of those under him. And yet, instead of using his position to enrich himself or to seek his personal gain, he uses his position to serve these beneath him, to serve those who are in need under him. Perhaps a quality that made him a centurion in the first place, but nevertheless, he shows a tangible love not only for his slave, but also the Jews. And this was grace. This was an enormous act of grace. He didn't owe them a synagogue. He didn't owe them anything. Rather, they owed him honor. And yet, his love and compassion, in that love, he stoops to serve these beneath him and at cost to himself. Should sound familiar. And so, these Jewish leaders attempt to build an argument to Jesus as to why this man is worthy. Again, typical of legalistic, self-righteous people. They immediately go to the works. They immediately seek to give reason for why someone is somehow worthy of salvation and because of some religious work that they achieved. But notice the response of the centurion, verse 6. And you cannot help but to see the contrast here between these self-righteous, legalistic, religious people. Verse six, now Jesus started on his way with them and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself. Literally, it's the word for being annoyed. Do not trouble yourself any further. And why? Well, for, so here's his argument, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. So not only does he have faith, not only... Does he embody love through compassion and mercy, verse 3 and beginning of verse 5? Not only does he exhibit a rich generosity, end of verse 5, but he also demonstrates now a tremendous humility. And this is so important because that is the quality, if you remember, that marked every single one of those people in the beginning of chapter 5. Every single one of them approached Jesus as utterly unworthy, They understood that they were not worthy of forgiveness, they were not worthy of healing, they were not worthy of his cleansing power, and so understanding that you are unworthy is the prerequisite, hear that, it is the prerequisite to all true salvation. And so here, not only is it the prerequisite to salvation, but it's also that most important quality that must keep on characterizing you. That is to say that there must be a daily and ongoing awareness of your unworthiness. And so this man's evaluation of himself could not be further from the evaluation of these Jewish leaders. This man understood himself. He understood his true nature. He understood his sin. He wasn't deluded by his position. Rather, He understood that when measured before the person of Christ, which is all that matters, he could not stand. He takes the posture of one who bows low. He takes the posture of humility, which as we saw in that story of the leper is how all true sinners must come to Christ. You do not come to him because you are worthy. You come to him precisely because you are unworthy. That is what qualifies you to be forgiven. If you don't understand your sin, then frankly, what is there to forgive? How many religions, how many forms of legalistic Christianity are people taught that they must first do something? Perform some religious acts, clean up their life, conform to some pattern of religion, say a certain kind of prayer, light a certain candle, give an X amount of money, feel a certain spiritual emotion within you, and then after all that false penance, they now think that they can approach Jesus for salvation. And why? Well, because now they believe that they have an argument. They believe that they evidence that they are now somehow sincere this time. They believe that they are truly penitent. And notice the centurion's only statement is that he is not worthy, that he does not deserve salvation. And because he understands that his position, his character, his money, his influence, even his good work for these Jewish people is not the ground upon which salvation visits you. He understands that salvation is a one-sided work of Christ alone and apart from anything that he could earn. And so, in an ironic twist, his unworthiness becomes the very cause for his salvation. He doesn't want Jesus anywhere near his home. He understands his sin. He understands the state of his own life before this one who is holy. And so notice in addressing him as Lord, curios, literally master, and recognizing Jesus for who he is, he implores him through these emissaries to stay away. Do not defile your holiness. Do not annoy your holiness by bothering yourself with such an unworthy sinner. Beloved, that is the heart of any true disciple, is it not? Understanding your sin, understanding your unworthiness, that is the prerequisite to your salvation. As he said in chapter 5, it is not those who are well who are in need of a physician, but those who are sick. And so in order to be healed, you must first understand your need. You must understand your sin, that you are unworthy of this kingdom. And yet it is to that kind of person to whom Jesus comes. He does not come to the self-righteous. He comes to the humble, unworthy sinner. And there's no kind or amount of sin for which Jesus cannot forgive. In fact, that has never been the issue in any of these passages or these stories that we've seen in chapter 5. Rather, the only issue is whether or not you see yourself to be a sinner. It is not the amount of sin or the kind of sin that is the issue, but rather it is that you sin that is the issue. And so this man embodies Humility. Humility is not only something that you must have in order to become saved, where you understand that your sin and your unworthiness is what you are before a holy and righteous God, but it's also something that a true disciple must continually live in a daily manner. For the moment that you cease to understand your daily unworthiness, that is the moment that perhaps you reveal that salvation has not truly visited you. The call of the gospel is that you must see your sin. And this man did. This man remained aware of his own wretchedness. And so much so that after sending these Jewish elders, he then ponders that command. Notice he quickly sends his friends, these these emissaries in verse 6, to stop Jesus before he gets anywhere close. And make no mistake, he is still in a desperate position. He is still longing for salvation of Jesus. And so notice, end of verse 7, he says, says, But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am also a man placed under authority or possessing authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. In other words, just as he possessed authority in his word to command those under him, He understands that Jesus as well possesses a kind of divine authority, but it's bound up in his word. And again, just an amazing statement of faith. In fact, that is the main point. This is an amazing illustration of trust. This man has never seen Jesus. He has never seen him healed. He has never heard him teach He simply hears the message of who Jesus is, trusts that message, and from a place of great desperation and humility. And he understands that Jesus doesn't owe him anything. He doesn't owe him salvation. And yet he's heard enough about Jesus to understand that the kind of person that Jesus promises to heal is the one who understands that they are sick. And so this man takes Jesus at his word. He does not presume that Jesus will do this, but he does know that Jesus possesses the power and the authority to accomplish such things. He's heard the stories, he's heard the rumors. And hearing that Jesus heals those who know that they need healing, he implores him to keep his distance, but then trusts in the power of Jesus' word. Again, that is an illustration of a disciple. Not only does he have faith, not only does he love, not only does he have compassion and mercy, not only does he demonstrate humility, but he then exhibits an almost supernatural trust in the word of Christ. This is a remarkable disciple. He's not waiting for Jesus to prove himself. He's not waiting to stand at a distance and determine if this is all really worth it. Rather, in desperation and understanding his unworthiness, he hears the message of Jesus and responds in faith. And that is what shocks Jesus. Faith is not only the way that salvation is received, but it's also that realm in which a disciple must dwell. We know from Hebrews chapter 11 that faith is the one reality alone that pleases God. It is faith and faith alone that... God delights in. In fact, notice verse nine, Luke states, now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you that not even in Israel have I found such great faith. That is a stinging indictment. This is a statement that would have offended any Jew to the core. What do you mean that a Gentile has great faith. Israel is a nation of God. Israel is the one to whom salvation belongs. Israel is the one to whom the promises and the covenants belong. What do you mean that you have never seen such great faith even in Israel? Well, he means what he means. And so to all these would-be disciples following him from this mountain, he declares to them a picture of what true saving discipleship looks like. And so again, what is that? Well, it is a person who not only loves, not only shows compassion and mercy, not only expresses humility and unworthiness, but they live their life in a perpetual state of faith in the word of Christ. And what is the result? Verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good health. He was saved. He was Delivered by the word. What is so amazing about this particular story, and it's a special emphasis that is unique to Luke alone because it is written by a Gentile, primarily to Gentiles, but he demonstrates here how salvation truly belongs to the outsider. There's a great contrast here between the Gentiles and Tyrian and a slave with these Jewish elders who suppose that salvation is a result of the religiosity or ethnic heritage. That the cause of salvation, according to Jesus, is only faith. It is always that humble trust in his word. And so in many ways, this is a very simple story, simple message. Not a lot of complexity, not a lot of mystery, Here's a man demonstrating what it means to build your house upon the rock, which, as we saw last time, is the words of Christ, chapter 6, verses 47 and 48. And yet, as I mentioned in the beginning, this is not a story. Hear this. This is not a story primarily about salvation. That is not what this is about. We saw those stories in chapter 5 with the leper and the paralytic and the tax collector. Rather, this is a story now on the other side of the Sermon on the Mount that is showing us what true discipleship looks like. This is an account in which the faith of a disciple, notice, becomes the means through which another dying sick sinner is saved. In other words, this is a story about how a disciple, hear this, becomes useful to the master. That is what this is about. It is not the centurion who is described as being saved. That is simply presumed. Rather, it is the one to whom the centurion is loving that is saved. And notice, he is saved through the faith of the disciple. In other words, just as faith is integral to your own salvation, apparently it is equally integral to how Christ will use you in his purposes for the kingdom. I think that we think much on the faith of the one that we're trying to evangelize, which is good and right, but I wonder how much we think about the place of our own faith in that process. Just as much as they need to respond in faith to the gospel, how often have you thought about the function of your own faith as you seek to bring that message? And so I love this passage because it is so simple, so clear. This is all about how to be useful to the master. And which, by the way, is why this centurion here calls Jesus a mere Jew, Master. Verse 6. So the word translated as Lord, it's, it's again, Kurios, Master. Roman centurions do not call Jewish rabbis Master. And so the question for us this morning is so how useful to the Master are you? That is the question this passage provokes. Do you desire to be useful? Do you desire to be fruitful? And if your answer to that question is yes, then here is the model. Here's the pattern of life that you must possess to bear fruit. And so if you don't bear fruit in your life, then you would do well to study this man's faith. The pattern that we must have is that you must desire the salvation of a lost world from a place of desperation. How desperate are you for your neighbors and your coworkers and your family? And because you understand that time is short. You understand that everyone is standing daily on the precipice of eternity. Whereas one man writes, the fragrance of heaven roams, but the stench of hell lingers. And while most people go about their lives giving not much thought to God and presuming that tomorrow has been somehow promised to them, you understand the gravity and the brevity of their position before a holy judge. And so you, first of all, understand the desperate situation. This is urgent. But second, you must love them with an unconditional love. You must seek to do whatever it is that you must do in order to make salvation visit this dying world you must demonstrate a heart of generosity and compassion as you tangibly show your love toward an evil and hostile world you must live your life in humility before your savior knowing that you are an unworthy vessel and yet in your unworthiness that is what qualifies you for him to use you For again, in contrast to these Jewish elders, Jesus will not use a self-righteous person. Do you understand your sin? But then fifth, do you believe by faith that Jesus' word is the exclusive means through which that salvation comes? But it is always his gospel that contains the power. Are you like Paul who can say in Romans chapter one that he is not ashamed of the gospel and why, for it is the power of God unto salvation. Do you believe that? And so if we're to be a faithful church and a faithful light in the midst of this dying and darkened city, then we must be a people, hear this, of tremendous faith. Abiding faith, consistent faith. Must be a church that goes out loving. We must live daily in compassion and generosity. We must approach this mission in humility. And we must do it all by faith. For faith is what amazes Jesus. It is the only mechanism through which not only will he save you, but through which he'll use you to save this world. So that is our calling And that is how he will use us in his time. Let's pray.